Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Alhamdulillahirrabbilalamin Wa ashadu anna la ilaha illallah Wa ashadu anna muhammadan Rasulullah Wa subhanallah al-aliyya al-azim Uuminu bih وأستعينه وأستهديه وأستجيره فإنه حقا من هدى الله فلا مضل له ومن أضل الله فلا هادي له اللهم رب السماوات والأرض اللهم يا رب السماوات والأرض إني أؤمن بك وأتوكل عليك وأعوذ بك من أن أضل أو أضل أو أزل أو أزل أو أظلم أو أظلم أو أجهل أو أستجهل وأقول يا نور السماوات والأرض يا نور السماوات والأرض اجعل لي نورا اجعل في قلبي نورا وفي عقلي نورا وفي أهلي نورا وفي قومي نورا واعظم لي نور فإنك نور السماوات والأرض وأصلي وأسلم وأبارك على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين Perhaps for American Muslims and indeed for Americans, no recent event has been as significant and as impactful. as the recent unfortunate developments in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Yet again, a black man is shot by law enforcement this time, this man apparently had intervened to break up a fight. He was in a car with his family or, or with his children. And police officers 
ordered this man to stop, according to the police narrative, at least. He continued on to get into his car, so they shot him seven times in the back in front of his children. And as I far as far as I know, this man is still alive in critical condition. Was not sure whether he's going to make it or not. But even if he does, he's likely to be paralyzed for the rest of his life. And as not surprisingly or as expected, this has led to demonstrations. There was a weak, muted response from the leadership in the White House, if there was a response at all. But the situation was exacerbated when in response to the demonstrations, the armed guard was called in. There were clashes as a result and one of the most important developments, a teenager called Kyle Rittenhouse, who belongs to a new fad, well, it's an old new fad of white people creating militias, self-appointed militias, to protect the country from an imagined enemy. In American history, the imagined enemy at different times were Chinese people. At another time, it was Japanese people. At another time, it was those who thought to free slaves, i.e. militias created by Southerners to resist the encroachment of Northerners in the belief that they had a right to protect their, their property and their property was slaves. Anyway, this is an old practice in American history where in particular white people, white people, imagined themselves as the protectors of Americana, armed themselves with a distinctly white reading of American history and the history of the Constitution. In other words, a particular understanding of American constitutionalism, they declare that they have the right to create militias to protect the country. Although, of course, when the Constitution speaks about militias, the Constitution did so with the assumption 
that the United States did not have a military and did not have an organized police force and militias were necessary to preserve the independence of the country. But nevertheless, for a long time now, there have been white people who imagined themselves the protectors of Americana organized as militias and delegate the right to use force to themselves at their discretion against their perceived enemy. And their perceived enemy has historically been blacks, Asians, as well as any other perceived minority depending on the historical circumstance. Well, in this situation, the 17-year-old kid imagining himself as belonging to a militia that has the right to protect the country against mobs, which he saw as mobs rather than demonstrators exercising their constitutional right to demonstrate against injustice, he then proceeded to shoot people in this demonstration and killed and wounded several people. The situation was exacerbated further when the police, instead of placing this 17-year-old who has just shot and killed people under arrest, instead of doing so, they actually let him go. They did not arrest him immediately. Apparently, it was obvious to them that a black man attempting to go back to his car who did not yield to their orders immediately deserved to be neutralized with seven shots in the back. But a 17-year-old punk who has just killed, shot, and killed people who belong to a white supremacist militia it wasn't that apparent to them that this person deserved to be arrested. When eventually the district attorney's office issues a warrant for the arrest of this kid, the police proceed to arrest him, but they treat him very differently than any would-be black suspect in custody. They provided him refreshments, talked to him, joked with him, and currently this kid is facing charges. The event is sadly symbolic of the situation that the United States is deteriorating to. It is sadly symbolic of where we are heading. Institutional racism remains anchored in the very structure of so much of the country. 
and instead of civil society developing mechanisms and processes for cleansing this institutional racism, indeed, we have an administration whose rhetoric and whose policies further empower and legitimate this institutional racism and exacerbate it by using the very same means that have been used now for decades and indeed centuries to solve the race problem in the United States. And that is brute force. When all is said and done, it is power that is possessed by the dominant, supreme, white class that then uses brute force to suppress and dominate and preserve their traditional privileges in society. The reason I bring this up, of course, you'll find the mainstream media speaking about this, and there has been a lot said about this, but the reason I bring this up in a khutbah is because of the part that concerns me and interests me. And that is the response of Muslims. There have been a considerable Muslim segment that responds to events like this by repeating the rhetoric of all lives matter as opposed to black lives matter. Indeed, when you say all lives matter in response to a situation like this and in response to the movement that attempts to challenge the privileges of white power in this society and the privileges of systemic and institutional racism, when in response you simply say all lives matter, it is precisely as Imam Ali radiallahu anh said, kalimatu haqq yuradu biha batil. It is true. As a statement, it is true, all lives matter. But the purpose for which this true statement is uttered is evil. While the statement itself is factually correct, what motivates and the objective of that statement is incorrect and in fact immoral. When we talk about all lives matter, what we are saying is all 
sorry, when we are when we talk about Black Lives Matter, what we are saying is Black Lives Matter too. Two. The assumption that precedes the assertion as to Black Lives Matter is that because of systemic racism, institutionally, the lives of black people and indeed other minorities, including Muslims, by the way, is not valued the same as the lives of the privileged race and privileged class in the United States. So the assertion is that black, black lives matter too. It is a reminder of a basic Islamic principle that you cannot create an institutional structure that validates policies and decisions that ends up treating a group of people whether racially defined or religiously defined or ethnically defined or however you define that group of people, as when all is said and done as a practical matter, when you end up treating this group of people as worth less than others. The statement, Black Lives Matter too, is a claim that aspires for equality. When you respond to this statement by saying all lives matter, while factually correct, but the reason, the, the, the intended objective of saying all lives matter is to deny the legitimacy of claims for equality made by the Black Lives Matter movement. And since Muslims seem to be needlessly confused about this, sure, Islam demands, and it is a tenet of our faith, that all lives are equal. And it is a tenet of our faith that all lives are worth the same without distinction. That is a tenet of our faith. But our faith doesn't tell us to ignore the realities of racism, bigotry, or discrimination. Just because your faith teaches you an ideal, you could choose to believe that what your faith teaches you as an ideal 
has been achieved in reality, but then you are in fact deprecating your faith because you are failing to differentiate between an ideal asserted as an aspiration and an empirical reality found on the ground. You can either choose to take that statement as of an ideal as somehow representing reality, whether true or not, or you take that statement of an ideal as a challenge that your faith is presenting with you with. So in other words, when Islam tells us all lives are equally worth, or that all lives are worth the same, is Islam telling you that regardless of where you live, or the circumstances under which you live, or the realities under which you live, is Islam telling you to ignore empirical reality, to ignore oppression, to ignore tyranny, to ignore classism, to ignore racism, just because Allah tells you that lives are equal the same. Is Allah telling you be dumb, stupid, mute, and deaf, and just ignore the world, and believe in an ideal as if it has been achieved throughout history? If you say yes, then you've turned religion into an opiate of the people. And if you turned religion into an instrumentality of the devil. What Allah is telling you is all lives are worth the same as a challenge. So because you believe all lives are worth the same as a challenge, You side with those who say black lives matter. Because you're not denying the equality of life when you say black lives matter. But you are acknowledging that in practice, blacks are not treated equally. Just simple as that. is as straightforward and simple as that. Religion doesn't teach you ideals so you can become naive, ignorant, and stupid. Stupidity doesn't come from Allah, it comes from you. Ignorance doesn't come from Allah, it comes from you. When religion teaches you an ideal, Religion is challenging you to transform the theoretical ideal into a lived reality. It is not telling you you can assume 
that the theoretical idea has become a lived reality. So put it again, bluntly and simply, in America that we live in today is the life of a black person equal to the life of a white person. If you say as a matter of constitutional law, absolutely, it is equal. If you say as a matter of theoretical law, absolutely, it is equal. But if you say as a matter of practice, and as a reality in the institutions of law, no, they're not equal. All you have to do is look at our prison systems. How many blacks are in prison as opposed to whites? The representation is dis grossly disproportionate with the number of blacks in society. Every single scholarly study done has documented the way that the actual criminal system, legal system, regardless of the theory, regardless of what's written in the books, discriminates, targets, and systematically degrades and deprecates and dominates blacks. Empirically, every single scholarly study has shown the gross disproportionality between the criminal sentences received by blacks and the criminal sentences received by whites. Economically, the lived reality is, again, gross economic inequality. Anthropologically, a white person is born with far greater opportunities than a black person in this society. But furthermore, the institutions of power in this society, when we say that the institutions of power suffer from systematic or systemic racism, it means that power is taught to suspect and dread blacks in the training of law enforcement, in the training that those who enforce and interpret and apply the law, that they are taught to dread and suspect blacks in ways that they do not do with whites. 
And incidentally, the same happens with Muslims. Regardless of how much Muslims want to pretend it doesn't. In other words, those cops who shot this black man seven times in the back didn't wake up that day saying, let's get us a black man. They didn't wake up intending to shoot a black man seven times in the, black, in the back. But their education and their training because of long, systemic, and deeply ingrained processes in the institutions of power, has taught these police officers to see a black man differently than they see a white man, to read the signals from a black man very differently than they read a white man. And ultimately, to deal with a black man very differently than they deal with a white man. For Muslims to respond to this reality that surrounds us by saying, well, all lives matter. It's a word of truth uttered for evil purposes. You've deprecated Islam, insulted Islam. You've used God to undermine God. And I can't imagine a worse sin than using the ideals that God has taught us to undermine the ideals that God has taught us. That has to be the worst sin. In 2014, Hamza Yusuf, the president of Zaytuna, forbade the students in his school from participating in the Black Lives Matter demonstrations. And he waved away the Black Lives Matter movement by simply saying all lives matter. And that Islam taught us that all lives matter. Years later, I find Muslims from various institutions saying, well, we can't join the Black Lives Matter movement because Islam taught us that all lives matter. Are you using rhetoric to defeat principle? Because that is exactly what you're doing. 
You're using rhetoric to defeat principle. The rhetoric is the rhetoric of equality. The principle is also the principle of equality. So use the rhetoric of equality to defeat the principle of equality. What does that make you? It makes you a dogmatist, a demagogue, a person who jumps on rhetoric to ignore the principle is a demagogue. And I expect much better from Muslim leadership. But let's get to the heart of the matter. Why is it that some Muslim leaders say all lives matter and use it as an excuse to ignore the Black Lives Matter movement? And not only that, but some of them will say ridiculous things and offensive things like, Oh, well, the cops kill as many whites as they do blacks. It's just we don't make a big deal about it when they kill whites. She's just thoroughly racist. Why? Anywhere you slice it or dice it, there is a resistance that all minorities that come to a dominant society, when minorities join a majority that is dominant, the minority often tries to negotiate for privileges with the majority. How does a minority do that? The way a minority negotiates for privileges with the majority is by trying to assure the majority that we as a minority are not a threat to you. We're not a threat to you, so please share with us your privileges. Please don't fear us. Please don't be worried about us. Please allow us to have opportunities that you have. Please give us a place on the table. Please allow us to be honored and respected and dignified. The way a minority does that, and here I'm talking about historically for people who are actually educated, is that the way a minority does that is to try to perform the culture of the majority. So if the majority speaks a certain language, if the powerful speak a certain language, the minority tries to learn that language and prove that, see, I, I, I love your language. If the majority eats a certain type of food, the minority tries to eat the same type of food and say, see, I love the same food. If the majority dresses a certain way, 
or has certain habits and customs. The minority does the same and says, see, I love your way of life. Don't be afraid of me because I'm fine with you. I, I am willing to be you if you would just allow me. You take this to the American context. This is precisely what we mean when we say we perform whiteness. This is precisely what we mean when we say we perform whiteness. Here is the challenge for all these Muslims who pretend they know anything about critical race theory. And I've talked in previous khutbahs about Muslims who love to pretend that they actually know something about critical, critical race theory, although it's clear they've never read anything on it. There are whites who are biologically white, but culturally, they're not treated as white. And there are blacks who are biologically black, but culturally, they've been given admission to the white club. Whiteness, whiteness is a property, is a privilege. Whiteness is a set of social and economic and political entitlements within a dominant culture in the United States. In the United States, being white means that you're either Protestant or Jewish, that you've gone through a particular system of education, that you accept a particular understanding of American history, that you, under, that you have a particular understanding of the history of American constitutionalism, that you believe in a particular understanding of American economics, that you have a particular emotional and, and uh, emotional and moral attitude towards the economics of opportunity in the United States, and that you have a particular attitude towards the culture of consumption and spending. If you buy into all of that particular cultural package, It is possible that you are biologically not white, but you are culturally white in the United States. However, the way race works, race is a signifier. What does that mean? It means that you are black until proven otherwise. 
and you are white until proven otherwise. So when I see a white man or a white woman, I will assume that they are entitled to all the privileges, privileges of whiteness unless they prove themselves to be not deserving of these privileges. And then I might demote them and start treating them as Muslim or treating them as black or treating them as Latino or Hispanic. Similarly, when I see a black man, I will assume that this black man is not entitled to the privileges of whiteness and should be treated with all the suspicions that I treat black people with unless they prove themselves to be whites. Unless they think like a white man, they consume like a white man, they speak like a white man, they act like a white man, and then I might say, okay, I'm going to ignore the color of your skin and in fact treat you as if you're white. Whiteness is about entitlements and privileges. Race is a simple signifier. It is not the ultimate conclusion. But that's very problematic. Because we know if you're black, the signifier to police that doesn't know you from Adam is that they will suspect you and shoot you in the back or shoot you in, at your home or kill you by stepping on your neck. Because most people only know you at the level of a signifier. The vast majority of people in your life never get the opportunity to go beyond the superficial, the color of your skin. And it is fundamentally immoral and un-Islamic to have a culture of privileges instead of a culture of equality. This is why, again, when those who say black lives matter and what they mean to say is black lives matter too. What they're demanding is a culture of equality. What they are challenging is a culture of privileges and entitlements. And those who say in response, all lives matter. Superficially, what they're defending is a culture of equality. Substantively, in reality, what they're doing is they're protecting a culture of privileges and entitlements. It makes me ill when I hear Muslims who are supposedly raised by the Quran and the Prophet utter dribble, offensive, morally and Islamically, utter dribble because he can't think clearly. 
Because as Muslims, we have not been taught to think clearly. Is it possible that a police would stop a white man who has not been, was not suspected of any crime, by the way? Not that even if he was suspected, it would have made it right. And shoot him seven times in the back in front of his family. Is it possible that this would happen to a white man? Yes, it's possible. But how often does it happen to a white man? And when you take into account the percentage of black people in the population and compare the percentage of black people in the population to the statistics of police having problems with black people, in other words, creating problems with black people, it is so disproportionate that the writing on the wall becomes very clear. I've had limited dealings with LAPD. And in the years that I've worked with LAPD, I've actually worked very hard to sever my contacts with them. Why? Because I found that the systemic culture of LAPD, and I'm not picking on LAPD in particular, I think that probably is true with any police force in the country. The assumptions they had towards Muslims were prejudiced, bigoted, and racist. And that in order to become in good standing with them in a professional capacity, in order to overcome these assumptions, I would have to work very hard, much harder than if I was not a Muslim and not an Arab. Is it possible to overcome these assumptions and these privileges, these prejudices and these biases? Probably yes, but I would have had to work much harder than a similarly situated white non-Muslim professor. And that offends my sense of equality. Why should I have to work much harder to prove to you that I am a human being, just like my colleague, at UCLA Law School who you don't afford the same suspicions to. Why do I have to work much harder to prove to you that I am a good human being and a good person? The fact that I do have to work much harder is what offends me. And it is precisely what we mean when we say black lives matter too, or Muslim lives matter too. Muslims, just be honest. 
it is always easier to join the culture of those who are dominant and those who are privileged and those who enjoy all the perks of power. Don't corrupt Islam so you can give license to your hawa, to your whims, so you can remove the sting of guilt as you try to get closer to the annals of power and to the privileges of power and try to convince the powerful that they have nothing to fear from you and that you're good boys and good girls. If you want to do that, do it, but don't drag Islam into it. Don't corrupt the minds of youth and somehow convince them that if they fight racism, that they're not being good Muslims. Because then, you're working for the devil, you're not working God for God anymore. الله أكبر على كل من اعتدى وتجبر وسبحان الله العلي العظيم والصلاة والسلام على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه وتبوا إحسان إلى يوم الدين In a previous khutbah I've talked about one of the most shameful developments in recent history, the shameless betrayal of Palestinian people when the United Arab Emirates decided to normalize relationships with Israel and stood by as Netanyahu simply said, oh, we didn't give up on the idea of annexing Palestinian lands. We just postponed it, all, postponed it a little. And in fact, after that, proceeded to bomb Gaza while the countries like the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and the Egyptian government maintained complete silence. The Trump administration wondered if when they moved the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, whether the Arab world is going to erupt, in fact, whether the Muslim world is going to erupt in protests. And they very publicly sighed, breathed a sigh of relief when there was no reaction in the Muslim world. And people like Stephen Bannon and all the Christian right that want a Christian America and a Christian Western civilization that dominates, defeats, and dominates the Western civilization till the coming of their awaited Messiah, Jesus. 
Because they imagine that the armies of Satan or these armies of the Antichrist will be Muslim armies. And it is Jesus who is going to defeat the armies of the Antichrist, which will be constituted Muslim armies. Anyway, they were all, they all breathed a sigh of relief. Oh, we can continue doing business with Muslims. We can take Jerusalem. We can take Al-Aqsa Mosque. And we can still enjoy the money of Muslims and the business of Muslims. And Muslims really just are a bunch of demagogues. They only have rhetoric, but they never do anything worth anything. In this context, an event sort of erupted on the scene when the United Arab Emirates, which as I mentioned before, is often referred to in the Arabic-speaking world as Shaitan al-Arab or the Satan of Arabs because of its policies. It, it, it is a demonic power and a demonic force indeed engaging in things that One second, I'm just looking for the statement. The United Arab Emirates created a couple of councils, one a fatwa council and a second a council for peace in the Muslim world, which they populated with various figures that would legitimate clearly the whole idea by the Fatwa Council headed by Sheikh bin Bayya and also the Council for Muslim Peace headed again by bin Bayya and the entire relationship of the United Arab Emirates with Sheikh bin Bayya is quite clear is to legitimate the very immoral policies of the United Arab Emirates. In this context, then, they issued a statement under the auspices of the Muslim Peace Council, headed by Sheikh bin Bayya, and it said that in its 10th uh, tenth, um, tenth meeting, which apparently, or according to this statement, met on Saturday, August 15, 2020, that the scholars that are part of this council all agreed to and endorsed a statement. And this statement does two things. One, it praises, kisses up to, in, in obscene terms to the Emir of Abu Zabi, Sahib al-Sumu, Sheikh Muhammad bin Zayed, the so-called MBZ. It praises him as a great man of great wisdom who does great things. And it blesses the agreement with Israel which according to this statement, 
saves and protects post-Palestinian lands from annexation, which we all know that Netanyahu immediately after the agreement said, no, it doesn't. Now, this statement, according to the statement itself, was signed by Bin Bayya himself, Sheikh Bin Bayya, and the Mufti of Egypt, Shaw'i Alam, who is a, a, a if I had stronger words, I, I would articulate them, but it's a revolting human being. A revolting Muslim and a revolting human being who is an embarrassment to the Islamic civilization and is embarrassment to Sharia law. Anyway, the Mufti of Egypt, Shaw'i Alam, Dr. Faisal bin Muammar, the head uh, Faisal bin Muammar um, is from Saudi Arabia, uh, a fellow from Jordan. From the U.S., so we get to the pertinent part, Hamza Youssef, well-known, Sayyida Aisha al-Adawiya from Karama, and Muhammad, uh, no, Muhammad al-Samak is from Lebanon, um, the other guy from the United States, who I actually, Muhammad al-Sunusi, from an organization apparently in the United States called the Makers of Peace. Now, after the statement was issued with the pictures of the undersigned, the representative from Palestine resigned in protest. And uh, Al-Adawiya, uh, what's her name? Um, Aisha Al-Adawiya also resigned in protest and said, yes, we did meet, but we didn't discuss the accords with between the Emirates and Israel, and we didn't agree to bless these accords, and we didn't describe these accords as a great step by MBZ, and so they resigned both the Palestinian fellow and um, the Adawiya woman from Karama resigned in protest. Hamza Yusuf didn't resign. Instead, there were a number of articles published severely criticizing Hamza Yusuf for failing to resign. And in what I, in, in, in a typical style of Muslim obfuscation and the exploitation of a superficial knowledge of the Islamic tradition to legitimate immoral and unethical positions, here is what Hamza Yusuf wrote in response. According to Imam al-Shafi, words cannot be attributed to one who has not spoken them. لا ينسب إلى ساكت قول إلى ساكت قول لا ينسب إلى ساكت قول You can't attribute to someone who's silent words. It's not words that has not spoken them. Hamza Yusuf, anyway, continues on, continues on. This is an important juristic principle. The recent reports alleging my political views were fabricated and erroneous. 
I do not engage in or endorse geopolitical strategies or treaties. My allegiance is and has always been with the oppressed people of Palestine, whether Muslim, Christian, or otherwise. Anyone who says differently is a liar. The Quran reminds us and damnation of God is upon liars, as if we, we needed this reminder. God is the judge and defender for the believer. I place my complete trust in him alone. There have been some articles that have made false attributions about me and fabricated scenarios that never took place. The Quran says if an ungodly person brings you brings you news, make sure that you investigate the news or you will regret it. I was never contacted by any news or media outlet for a statement or clarification on the recent controversy. Please do not spread lies on the internet, suspend judgment, and seek clarification. And the prophet said, the best of servants of God are those who remind you of God when they are seen. The worst servants of God are those who carry gossip, separating between loved ones and seeking misery from the, for the innocent. This is a classic example of Muslims using classical traditional knowledge in the most dogmatic fashion to obfuscate and avoid having to confront ethical and moral issues. Yes, the Quran said, do not lie. Yes, the Quran said, do not spread suspicions. And when you, the, someone brings you news, make sure you investigate it before you accuse someone falsely. Yes, the Quran told us not to suspect a brother or sister without just cause. Yes, Imam al-Shafi said, But what does all of this have to do with anything? Unless you are so dogmatic in your thinking that you think that you must find the text to give you license to think the most obvious and clear thought before you can think it. That turns you into a robot, into a semi-human being, not a good Muslim. The Shafi principle, you can attribute a statement to someone who hasn't spoken, is illegal axiom placed within its proper legal context on evidentiary matters. It was not intended to apply to activists or political leaders and especially political leaders who have lent their name and their position to tyrants and become associated with tyrants on their fiqh council and their on peace forums. And especially when these tyrants working with someone like Bin Bayya issue a statement claiming that these scholars have supported a certain position which betrays the Palestinian people. That's one. But two, I have always been with the oppressed people of Palestine, whether Muslim, Christian, or otherwise. 
Are you saying that you are always with oppressed people, whether they are Palestinian or non-Palestinian? Or are you saying that you are always, always with the oppressed people of Palestine, whether these Palestinians happen to be Muslim, Christian, or otherwise? What are you precisely saying? Because if you are saying that you have always been with the oppressed people of Palestine, whether they're Christian or otherwise, so what? They're entitled to support and to fidelity and loyalty, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, because they've been oppressed as Palestinians. So what? But it is untrue, because you've never supported the Palestinian people. If you've done so in the privacy of your home, in your, with your family, that's your business. But once you go out in public and claim to be an Islamic authority, then it becomes our business. Because we have to decide whether you have credibility to educate our children or not. You want it to remain a private business, don't pretend to be an Islamic authority. Don't accept positions on fiqh councils working with tyrants who slaughter people in Yemen, who are responsible for a genocide in Yemen and in Libya and in Sudan, and for another tyrant in Egypt who has killed and slaughtered thousands. That mufti of Egypt that was honored by the Muslim Peace Council, Bin Bayya, and that Peace Council, which Hamza Yusuf still belongs to, honored the Mufti of Egypt. The Mufti of Egypt has signed off on hundreds of death sentences in Egypt against political opponents of the government. Hundreds of death sentences. You work with tyrants. You legitimate tyrants. If you meant to say that you are with Palestinian people, whether these Palestinian people happen to be Muslim or Christian, this is neither here nor there. But if you meant to say that you are with oppressed people, whether they are Palestinian or they are not Palestinian, Meaning, or the oppressed people happen to be Christian or otherwise. This is precisely the problem. The problem is that you can't stand with Palestinians without assuring the white man of your white credentials. Look, it's not that I just support the Palestinians because Jerusalem is an issue for me and Israel is a problem for me. It is that I just generally support any oppressed person in the world. A statement that would comfort the oppressor because it marks you as a non-threat. And the oppressor would say, okay, well, thank you for that wonderful general statement. Now sit on the side as I kill off these people because that's what you've done your entire history. Sat on the side. Get it through your minds, all of you. Islam never said 
never said whether it's whatever the theory of government that Islam might or would endorse. I will talk later, inshallah, about what theory of government, democracy, and all of that debate. But Islam never said that a religious scholar can legitimate or work with tyrants and that this is okay. And MBZ and MBS and CC of Egypt are tyrants. They are responsible for the torture and killing and maiming and, and destruction of thousands of people. And when you go and you accept money from them and accept being their guest and accept honors and privilege and being treated as a special guest and in return having your name printed in any of their projects you become part of the tyrannical project and tyrannical projects are from the devil they are never from allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allah has not taught human beings tyrant to be tyrants. Allah has not taught human beings tyranny. Allah has not told human beings tyranny is okay. It's fine with me. There is no sharia, no fiqh, no fatwa that can legitimate the actions of a tyrant. Torturing, arresting people, torturing people, murdering people is wrong regardless of whatever Sharia laws you want to exploit to get people to ignore it. And this is precisely what Bin Bayya does with MBZ and precisely what his student Hamza Yusuf is doing and precisely what anyone who's associated with the so-called Peace Council or Fatwa Council in the Emirates is doing. In this context, I will say that it broke my heart to see the name of someone that I actually admired as a scholar in that council. And that is Dr. Radwan Sayyid. Dwan Sayyid is a respectable scholar. And to see his name in an institution that is associated and was created by the tyrant MBZ, the devil of the Arabs, as he is commonly called, broke my heart. But it reminded me that knowledge does not give you immunity from immorality. You could be the most educated human being in the world, but if you don't keep your moral compass live and strong, you will, you will fall. Because I tell you what, being a scholar these days is exhausting. And eventually you become so tired so fatigued, so worn out that the devil
finds a million ways to convince you to throw your towel in, to throw in that white cloth and to say, okay, I've had enough resisting power and I will find some rational that excuses at least a comfortable position with power rather than existing in opposition to power. Knowledge does not give you immunity from immorality. Immorality doesn't change just because you have a million degrees. And it is immoral to work with a tyrant, period. That's it, khalas, end of line. No if, ands, or buts. A tyrant who jails and tortures and kills people. Do you want to look at what Imam al-Shafi said? About working with tyrants and working with people in government? Do you want to talk about how Imam al-Shafi refused a judgeship and was flogged for refusing to work with an Umayyad state, sorry, with the Abbasid state, although that Abbasid state was not nearly nearly as unjust as MBZ of the Emirat? Do you want to talk about how, what Imam al-Shafi did to escape any association with power? I'm tired of Muslims playing the fool. I'm tired of Muslims being idiots and being ignorant. Islam is not a license to quote some rhetoric taken from hundreds of years ago and to somehow try to convince people, don't use your ethical compass, don't use your common sense because I'm going to quote the Quran to stunt you and to turn you into an intellectual zombie incapable of moral or ethical thought. This is not Islam. Allahumma khfirlana. Allahumma afu'anna. Allahumma ahdina. Allahumma ahdina li akhraba min haza rashada ya ali ya azim. Wansur al-Islama bifadlak ya kareem ya rab. Allah forgive our sins. Guide us towards the straight path and the light. You are our only savior and guide and enlightenment, Ya Allah, Ya Ali, Ya Azim. Allah, grant Muslims the wisdom and insight to come out of these dark ages. Ya Rabbal Alameen, wa akum as-salam.